Our scripture reading for today comes from Isaiah chapter 64. Um, I made it green, you know. Anyway, <laughs> Isaiah 64. Uh, it kind of doesn't match like the, uh, the positive festive season. It's kind of a downer passage, but. Uh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the might, mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for uh, this time. We thank you for this place and we thank you for your word. And we pray that in this moment, uh, as we hear your word, that your word and spirit would um, be at work uh, amongst us. And that we would be able to, you know, hear from you and be convicted of the things that uh, not only you want to instruct us, but that, uh, you know, everything from our faith to our orientation, to our perspective, um, to our heart's desires uh, would be gradually shaped and transformed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right, so as I mentioned uh, earlier, this is the first day of the Advent season, which is usually like the four Sundays before Christmas. And so for the next couple of weeks, um, you know, we're going to reflect on the meaning of Advent. I think if you go to most churches these days, uh, this is not so uncommon anymore. A lot of churches are probably doing series on uh, the Advent season, but uh, that wasn't always the case in some traditions. Like I think in the uh, Presbyterian and Reformed church traditions uh, or churches that don't really follow like a, a liturgical calendar, uh, Advent wasn't something that was you know, hugely uh, acknowledged in the season uh, except for like maybe you know, in the Episcopalian church and maybe like the Catholic church and more liturgical churches. But I would say recently, maybe like the last 10 to 20 years, a lot of churches have adopted like this church calendar and Advent and have reflected on the meaning of Advent. Uh, For those of you who may not be familiar with what Advent is, Advent means like coming or arrival. It's basically the season that's supposed to anticipate the arrival of Jesus Christ. But, you know, historically, it wasn't actually a tradition that was tied to uh, the Christmas holiday. 
Advent uh, used to be a time of reflecting on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until the Middle Ages where Advent started to get connected to, to Christmas. Uh, I, I mentioned last week I've been reading this book on Advent uh, by an Episcopalian priest named Fleming Rutledge. And she actually used to preach uh, at a church, like not, not too far away, I think up this way, uh, a church called Grace Church, a historic church in this, uh, around this neighborhood. And uh, she published like writings and her reflections and her sermons on, on Advent. So I started reading it in preparation for, uh, I guess, this season. It's a phenomenal book, very insightful. You know, I read, I read these kind of books on, like, Bible software, and on my Bible software, you can see, like, the popular passages that people, like, highlighted or underlined, and I was, like, reading the introduction, and I kid you not, like, the whole introduction, it seemed like every paragraph was, like, highlighted by people, but, uh, uh, like, uh, one of the things that she uh, kind of opened my eyes to, a lot of it has to do with actually her critique on how Advent is um, remembered today. Today, Advent seems very much like a season uh, where we, you know, prepare for the Christmas holiday. And culturally, what that means is this is a season where uh, Christmas shopping starts. This is a season where you start to put up Christmas decorations, where you start to hear Christmas music starting to play. You know, yesterday, uh, my family and I, like, you know, we did a golf lesson and in the golf place playing Christmas music, right? Now, what was interesting and something that I wasn't really aware of, because I didn't grow up with, like, celebrating Advent or a liturgical calendar. But in the Episcopalian church, traditionally, she would say, is they wouldn't actually decorate the church for Christmas until Christmas Eve. In fact, like, the church was uh, decorated in a very, like, kind of a downer way, right? (laughs) Very bare and uh, not very festive. And she would even say, like, maybe a little bit even dreary. And she said, her argument is, like, that's actually a good thing because Advent is not supposed to be... uh, like an extension of Christmas where we celebrate the Christmas holiday for an entire month. But Advent is actually supposed to be a season that reminds us that we are weak, we are powerless, and the only thing we can do is wait and watch for the Lord. Waiting is a theme that has formed uh, me personally as of late. I think it is a theme that will form uh, the church in the West if it's not already. Uh, In American culture, we are not uh, very good at waiting, but we are very much about doing and making things happen. And of course, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but one of the spiritual side effects of that might be uh, maybe we have this delusion that we are actually more in control than we think and more powerful than we think. And therefore, in the stories of our lives, we are always at risk of putting ourselves in the spotlight in terms of like what we need to do to fix a problem or what we need to do to make the world right rather than putting the spotlight on God and saying, I feel helpless, and there's not much I can do except rely on the Lord. And, you know, someone who adopts a posture of waiting, they do so precisely because they feel helpless, precisely because they don't feel like they're in control. All they can do is wait. Uh, It's like being stuck in traffic, which I feel like I experience, like, every day now. A common experience if you have a car and if you drive in uh, New York City, and, you know, you try to take control. It's like, I'm going to try to change lanes. And this lane seems to be going faster. And as soon as you change lanes, like, all of a sudden it stops. And then the lane you change out of starts to go faster. And then you get in, like, the standstill traffic. And you feel, like, helpless. It's like, I need to get home. I want to get home. There's nothing I can do in this traffic except wait. And then, you know, you get very angry and frustrated. And you like, Ugh. you shake in your car. And it's a good thing that you're alone in your car and nobody sees you. Because that's probably when we sin the most. Uh, in our car, in traffic. Uh, It's a frustrating experience because it it renders us helpless. 
and uh, we feel incapable of improving our situation. So not only is Advent about waiting, but waiting tells us something important about the human condition. We're helpless. And when we wait on the Lord, the presupposition is we wait because we can't do anything about it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He also wrote a book on Advent. He says, A celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater. When he was in prison... If you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, there was like a plot to assassinate Hitler. But he was, uh, he was in prison, and he wrote a letter in prison, and this is what he says in prison. He says, uh, you know, I, it's only like a theologian who would be in prison and kind of think immediately of like a sermon illustration. But he's in prison. He says, a prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things. The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. So Advent is not supposed to feel like Christmas. Advent is supposed to feel like prison, <laughs> is what he's saying. All right, I give this introduction to let you know that, you know, as we enter into this Advent season, uh, it's not meant to be festive yet. It will soon, right? But it's not meant to be festive yet. It's not a season that's necessarily meant to put you into the Christmas mood, but it is a season for the troubled soul. It is a season for the weak soul. It is a season for the helpless soul. It's for the person who feels stuck in life, stuck in prison as Bonhoeffer felt, and for the one who feels that darkness is just too powerful and has overcome. And in order to appreciate our need for the light that comes on Christmas Day, what we have to do is we also have to remember the reality of darkness, that the world is dark. And Fleming Rutledge's famous line about Advent is this, Advent begins in the dark. So you read a lot of her sermons. It's actually talking a lot about the darkness of the world. Today, we're going to look at Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64 is uh, kind of like this communal lament. And the reason for this passage or this poem is uh, there's despair amongst the people of Israel. And this despair is uh, twofold. First, they have returned from Babylonian exile only to find, and what we saw in our passage, that their holy cities have become desolate places. That's what it says in verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. So they're lamenting the fact that God's city is now a desolation. Second, they're lamenting because of this. It seems like God has withdrawn himself from his people. Verse 7, it says, You have hidden your face from us. And then in verse 12, Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Both of these things are not necessarily separate things, but of course they intertwine. God is withdrawing himself, or God, because God withdrawed himself, uh, these traumatic events that happened in the sack of Jerusalem and the exile, uh, that's why they happened, because God withdrew himself. And the reason God, God withdrew himself is ultimately because of Israel's sin. The poem says as much in verse 5, Behold, you were angry, we sinned. Now here's what's interesting. The first three verses uh, of the passage what the prayer is doing is it's asking God to come and to judge the nations. They want God to come because they know God is an angry God. And therefore, in their minds, what God is supposed to do is he is supposed to come down and he is supposed to deal with Israel's adversaries, with Israel's enemies for what they have done. God is supposed to come down and judge the nations for killing you know, their people, for killing even their children, for destroying their homes, for de defiling the temple. They're saying, God, come down and... 
uh, in anger and judge, um, judge our adversaries. I know in our culture, people don't like to think about God as angry, but it actually is a very uh, crucial aspect of who God is. And we might not like to think about God as angry because what we do is we think about human expressions of anger, and then we say, um, oh, maybe God's anger is like that. Uh, but, of course, human expressions of anger tends to be uh, you know, very explosive, tends to be very much self-serving. And um, if we think that's what anger is and we uh, map that upon to God, then we misunderstand or we distort what it means that God is an angry God. You know, in so many of the Psalms, what it says is, it actually says God is, is someone who is slow to anger. But still, God does get angry, and ultimately, that's a good thing because what anger tells us is that I am against something, right? So when God is angry, what is he against? He is against sin. He is against evil. He is against injustice. He is against oppression. He is against all kinds of things that violate his holy character. And therefore, it is no wonder that Israel would call upon God to rend the heavens and come down. They're saying, come down, God, right? They want God to come down with his anger in judgment to judge the adversaries for all the horrific things that they did to the people of Israel. What I find interesting about this passage, though, is it does take a little bit of a turn because in the first three verses, they see themselves as the victims of injustice and they want God to judge everybody else. But then they come to this realization that the very thing they wanted God to do the nation to the nations, God has been doing to them. Why? Because they were the ones who sinned against God. And as a result, God has hidden his face from them. There is nothing arbitrary with God. And even the, this act of hiding his face from his own people serves a purpose. Fleming Rutledge, she says it this way. She says, God's hiding of himself is an order to make himself known. When God's presence is taken for granted, it is no longer real presence. I had to read that sentence like a couple times. Like, what, what does that mean? What does she mean by that? But here's what I think she means. You know, many years ago, someone I knew shared um, why he doesn't give people a lot of praise very easily. Like, you know, some people are like, oh, you're, you're amazing at this and you're so good at this. But this particular person is like, I don't like doing that. And uh, I was like, oh, like, what's the problem with that, right? Isn't, that, isn't praising people encouraging? And he's like, yeah, but, like, too many people, like, easily praise everyone for everything. And when everybody praises you for, like, everything, then the praise actually becomes empty. So when I praise somebody for something, I think it's a little bit weightier because I never do it, right? Uh, maybe it's like the participation trophy in, like, youth sports. If everyone gets a trophy, then the trophy ceases to, like, mean anything special. Likewise, if we simply assume that God is always just going to be there, then maybe the empirical reality of God's presence loses impact, is, its impact on us and we begin to take it for granted. And perhaps that's what happened to the people of Israel. At the height of their power, perhaps they took his presence for granted, so much so that they started to allow these foreign gods to come in and they started to allow idolatry uh, in their worship. Perhaps that, uh, what God's people ultimately needed was to actually experience what it was like for God to hide himself so that they might experience the reality of his presence once again. And yet, the silence of God can be very excruciating, especially if you are in a season of trouble and turmoil. There's some haunting questions at the end of the passage in verse 12. 
Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And I don't know if anybody here has ever asked those questions. You're going through something very difficult uh, in a very difficult season in life, and you're praying, and you feel like God is not answering, and you're kind of wondering, God, how long are you going to seemingly be silent um, and not respond and not answer my prayers? How long are you going to hide your face from us? And I think this is probably a common question that most people will ask at some point when you're going through darkness and difficulty. How long is this going to last? When are things going to start getting better? When am I going to start to feel better? Or if you've been in a conflict and you said something or done something that really hurt the person and that person doesn't want to talk to you anymore, like you, you know how agonizing that can be. And to have to wait for the other person to be ready to you know, reveal themselves again and to start talking to you again, right? That's a hard uh, thing to go through. And this is actually where Israel finds themselves in this moment in time, right? We sinned against you, God. How long are you going to hide your face? How long are you going to be silent? <clears throat> we'll get to the answer to that question in a bit. But let's first consider what God's people did in the midst of silence. And maybe it's instructive for us that when we feel like we're going through seasons where God is seemingly silent, um, perhaps things that we can do. There seems to be two things that they do here. First, <clears throat> they remember what God did. And in verse 3, they remembered God came down and he did awesome things. They remembered perhaps how God delivered them from the bondage of slavery, from the Egyptians. Perhaps they remembered how God promises uh, land to them and gave it to them by allowing them to overcome the Canaanites. Perhaps they remembered how God gave them a king like David who united this kingdom and made Israel into this powerful kingdom. They had memories of God's faithfulness and power that they would recall and remind themselves of. And so even though God was silent in this moment, they remembered, you know what? God has spoken in the past and he has um, He has done good things for us in the past and i need to remember this i think when we are going through seasons where god seems silent and he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers uh, immediately the great temptation is actually to forget to forget the past it's to forget that god has been faithful that god has been merciful to us that god has spoken to us and therefore god will speak to us again and some people are the kind of people where you know uh, unless you're present it's kind of like out of sight out of mind Unfortunately, I'm like one of those people, uh, which is not good. But fortunately, I have a wife who's actually very good at keeping in touch with people. So uh, on account of her, um, I can keep in touch with people. Uh, but sometimes maybe we do that with God as well, where it's kind of like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. If I don't feel God, if I don't see God, if I don't hear from God, maybe it's like out of sight, out of mind. But if that's the case, then those seasons of silence and hiddenness will be very difficult and very unfruitful. And they will likely be seasons of great despair. And so just as the Israelites remembered God in a season of silence, it would do us well to remember his faithfulness to us. Whatever it may have been in the context of our lives, his faithfulness to us in the past, and to just wait and remember that he will speak again. You know, our, you know with that said, I should also say our remembering of God or our memory of God is not nearly as important as God's memory 
of us. Last week, uh, last year, um, we had this like little memorial service um, for my aunt who had died a couple years ago, and uh, you know I was just kind of reflecting on that. And, you know, my cousin asked me to like give a little uh, sermon. It's called a memorial service because you know what, one of the things you do there is like you're supposed to remember the person who is no longer with us, and you know in this life, uh, memories are really the only way to kind of keep someone alive who is no longer with us. And so for that reason, memories are very precious. So uh, I shared a memory of my aunt, uh, and I was like, you know, when I, one of the things I remember about my aunt, when I was a little kid, and we were at the beach, and uh, I was like afraid of the water, and I was afraid of the waves, so I didn't really go into the ocean. And then all of a sudden, uh, I found myself in a wave underwater, not knowing like which way is up, and having like water go up my nose, and being like really confused, like, how did I end up in this wave? How did I end up underwater? And then like kind of getting reoriented, coming out of the water, coughing, because I swallowed a bunch of water, looking behind me and seeing my aunt like pointing and laughing at me, thinking, <laughs> did she just push me into the, <laughs> into the wave? <laughs> and uh, she did. And thinking like really confused, are adults supposed to do that? <laughs> right? That's, that's like a precious memory that I have of... <laughs> of my aunt who is uh who is no longer with us and you know just like uh, you guys laugh it's like a memory that makes me smile right and in that way memories are very important and very precious for remembering those whom we have lost in a way uh, it keeps us connected to those whom we love and yet all of our memories all they can do is really preserve a life that was once lived but you know what's more important is that god remembers if you go through the Bible, there are many times where God remembers. That's the phrase. Genesis 8, God remembered Noah. Genesis 19, God remembered Abraham. When Israel is in exile, God tells the people of Israel through the prophets, I will remember you again, right? Uh, coming up to Christmas, finally in Luke 1, before Jesus arrives, an angel tells Zechariah, who, by the way, his name actually means God remembered, that the Messiah is coming. Why? Because God. God remembers his covenant. When we remember, we preserve a life that was once lived, and we preserve something that we once knew. When God remembers, he does something much more than that. He resurrects that life. He restores those people. He makes new that creation. If you think about it, God would be silent for many, many years approximately 400 years. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, which is uh, the last time that we have recorded uh, that God spoke a word to Israel through the prophet. 400 years go by until John the Baptist. John ba the Baptist begins to announce the arrival of Jesus and that God would speak again. But for those 400 years, God was silent Advent is actually a season to remember that God was silent. That God hid his face on account of sin. We remember the silence and the hiddenness of God this season precisely so that we might not take for granted the reality of his presence given to us through the gift of Christmas. Are you ready for Christmas, this Advent season? 
And you should know at this point, the question doesn't mean, do you have your Christmas decorations up? Have you done your Christmas shopping? Are you in a happy and positive and festive mood? No, that's not what the question is asking. The question is, are you ready for Christmas this Advent season? Is your soul troubled and anguished? Or do you feel weak and helpless? Are you frustrated? Are you struggling? Are you in a season where you're waiting for God to do something mighty and powerful in your life, to restore something, to redeem something, to heal something? Are you waiting for that? If so, then the Advent season is upon you. And that is a heart, I think, that is ready for Christmas. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are ultimately a God who does speak. And there are seasons in which you have not spoken and in which you have been silent. And there are seasons in which your face has been hidden uh, from us. But we know that ultimately that is not the end of the story. That ultimately you do give us your presence. Ultimately you do promise to usher us in and to invite us uh, into eternal everlasting presence in the new heaven and in the new earth. And uh, I guess our prayer is in the daily busyness of our lives and everything that is going on, the one thing that we don't want to take for granted is uh, the power and the beauty of your presence, the gift of your presence in our lives. Uh, we want this to be a season where we can really, um, you know, even if it doesn't feel like you're uh, absent and if, even if it does feel like you are fully present in our, in our lives, uh, we want to remember the possibility that because of our sin, uh, you could hide your face from us. If only that, we might be able to delight in and enjoy in the fact that in Jesus Christ, you don't. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.